Welcome to the EEO Studio, a podcast produced by DCI Consulting Group. This is your host, Kelly Wilson, Senior Manager of EEO Compliance and Diversity and Inclusion at DCI Consulting Group. Joining me today as a co-host is my colleague, Rosemary Cox, who is a Senior Consultant with DCI. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This episode features Mark Nagy with Marcus Management Consultants. Mark will be talking with us today about civility, what it means to have a respectful workplace, the organizational gains, uh, think your EEO complaints as a, a hint for what's to come, and how to adopt this into practice through measurement and training. For those tuning in, I have known Mark since my graduate days at Xavier University in the Industrial and Organizational Psychology Program. I am so pleased to be partnering with you again, Mark, on such an exciting and relevant topic. Having read some of your research papers, published articles and blogs, I know our listeners have a lot to gain by staying tuned into this episode. So welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thank you, Kelly. It's great to be here. And it's great to be reunited with you also. It really is. Uh, I have been a professor for, geez, 24 years now. Uh, the last 19 have been at Xavier University. And by being a professor, I was able to engage in a lot of research projects as well as some consulting projects. And uh, about 11 years ago or so, I was working as a consultant for the Veterans Health Administration, and they started a civility, respect, and engagement in the workplace initiative. So that spells CREW. Uh, so it was called the CREW initiative. And um, through that work, I got interested in civility. Um, so I've been doing some research in civility since then. I also, uh, I guess you'd say, specialize in job satisfaction surveys or employee engagement surveys. So do that work with the VA. Um, and I've been doing this kind of work. Uh, I, oh, I've had my own LLC since 2005. So I've been officially consulting since 2005, but in reality, I've been consulting for about 20 years. Uh, I'm also the director of the Xavier University Industrial Organizational Master's Program. It's a little bit about me. Thanks, Mark, for that introduction. Um, I think it's really helpful for all of us to know kind of where you're coming from and your background. So is there, uh, I think this is an opportunity for us to kind of talk about what the definition of civility is so that our listeners understand um, and can get grounded into this topic. Um, do you mind sharing what, uh, you know, how you define it or how research defines civility in the workplace and maybe provide a couple examples of, of how it how it's seen or kind of plays out in the workplace? Sure. Um, in terms of a definition, uh, there there's a standard, if you will, definition that's cited a lot in the research. Uh, it's I'll, I'll give you the long definition, and then I'll tell you the, the part that we t tend to emphasize. The longer definition is demonstrating sensibility of concern and regard, treating others with respect. Um, workplace civility is a behavior that helps preserve norms for mutual respect at work. It comprises behaviors that are fundamental to positively connecting with another, building relationships, and empathizing with others. So that's kind of the long definition. The part that we typically use in our training is, the, is in the middle of that, which is simply workplace civility is behavior that helps to preserve norms for mutual respect at work. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on in that short definition. Um, one of them is the I, of mutual respect so it's 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 a sense of understanding how we treat each other at work it's a sense of what is appropriate behaviors and what are inappropriate behaviors um, 
those the idea of preserving norms those norms emanate from the work group or the work unit uh as opposed to say the organization overall now clearly an organization may have some typical standards of appropriate behavior but when when you get down to the daily interactions of employees there are norms that evolve and those norms really are evolving within the work group and, and and by definition those norms are being defined by the work group the thing of it is is we rarely take a step back and say oh this is a norm or that's not a norm and therefore there's although there are understandings of what's appropriate and inappropriate behavior we never have the discussion and really clear out any misunderstandings that we might have about what is appropriate and inappropriate so a simple definition like workplace civility is behavior that helps to preserve norms for mutual respect at work can mean a lot of different things. When you just when you say that there are these norms evolve at work and that mutual respect is um, something that you're striving for in the organization, do most companies do you find have this have they defined this at their at their workplace? Do they typically announce that they have some type of competency or, or something that they're going to measure their employees on as part of the performance evaluation or just their standards of, of um, that, that they hold their employees by? Do you ever see this kind of written up in a policy or or otherwise? Not really. The closest would be some sort of code of conduct or code of ethics, um, but not definitely not uh, at the work unit level. So those code of conducts or code of ethics typically are something that would be akin to like an organizational mission statement um where it's to, it applies to everyone mark wouldn't so, this be wouldn't this be considered what were you talking about more even just the basic how do i present myself how do i talk to my colleagues things that sometimes we don't even learn in grade school or college or high school that's how to behave in the workplace yeah absolutely and it's, and the thing is, it's different for each work unit. Um, uh, as an example, uh, an emergency room might have different norms about what is an appropriate response to a question, as opposed to, I don't know, uh, say the pediatric floor or, or an oncology floor or something like that. Uh, obviously in a hospital, you want to get quick responses to any question, but in an emergency room setting, it's of paramount importance to respond incredibly quickly. Um, so something as simple as agreeing to what is an appropriate response time when someone sends an email is not something that we learn in grade school. <laughs> and, the, and it also varies by the situation. So it, that sort of thing, going back to Kelly's question, is never written down. You must respond to an email within an hour or within 24 hours or things like that. It's it's rarely that anybody that that's written down it might be advised but it's not written down but when everybody understands by having a discussion and people can set parameters for themselves as to what's acceptable behavior then people have an, a, a clear expectation of what what their behavior should be so you're right rosemary there there we don't learn these behaviors in grade school about how to treat each other with with sometimes fundamental what we would consider to be fundamental uh, acts of of respect, um, and beyond that, it's it's these issues about communication and what's what's appropriate in terms of a timely response and what isn't. Can I ask about why did you start doing research? What made you 
you know, you, you're obviously well versed in what needs to happen, but where did the research piece come in? Why did you start that? Well, uh, and that will kind of roll in also how I got in, interested in this. I mentioned that my work as a consultant for the Veterans Health Administration, and there was an initiative about to, to uh, an initiative in the organization to implement this civility, respect, and engagement in the workplace, this crew initiative. We had a meeting in Washington, D.C., and they basically, when I say they, it was, it was coming from on high. Um, I was on a research team or a task force, and we were given the directive to create a measure of civility yesterday, basically. They wanted one now. So what we did is we took our existing employee engagement survey and looked over the questions and identified questions we thought might represent civility in the workplace. So we initially identified 10 questions. I believe the survey was about 55. We had identified a 10, 10 questions as to what we thought might constitute civility. Uh, we did a lot of statistics because that's what we do. <laughs> and um, we were able to get that 10 questions down to eight. Um, and therefore we had a measure of civility. And, and importantly, not only do we have a measure of civility, but we had all this data from that employee survey in the past. <clears throat> so we didn't have to collect new data although obviously we did, but we could begin looking at some of these relationships in the present time because we already had access to those items. So uh, the first time I ran the analyses looking at these eight items that we felt comprised civility, and I correlated it with our measures of job satisfaction and intention to turnover and things like that, I thought I did something wrong because I'd never seen correlations that high before with anything in industrial organizational psychology with no construct whatsoever did I see correlations that high. So I was sure that I did something wrong. And I went back and I dotted my I's and crossed my T's and made sure that I didn't somehow do something wrong. We ran the analyses and I got the same results. At that moment, I knew I was onto something. Um, we were so proud of our work at the VA that we literally, and I, I know this is going to tell you that I'm a geek, but we literally put up our output on the walls in our office um, <laughs> because we were so proud of it. I mean, that's how, not only did I recognize it, by the way, I mean, we all did. Everyone on our research team realized how powerful this idea of civility in the workplace was and how related it, it was what well, we were finding, how related it was to a whole host of job-related outcomes that any organization would be interested in. So, Rosemary, from that moment on, that's how I got in, involved in the research. And for about the next four years, um, we did research on civility in, in the workplace. We had several conference, national conference presentations um, telling our story about how we came to this civility measure and showing what it was related to, and I can get into those relationships in a minute, but showing all kinds of uh, links, linkages, if you will, to um, desired organizational behaviors, as well as showing monetary costs that were associated with it. Um, this was, I was, again, I was working for, it's an office within the federal government. It's called National Center for Organization Development. 
and that office was an, an amazing office uh, when I started. And it's not because of me. It's because of the leader, Sue Derenforth, and some other members of her team. But when I started working with them, there were four people in 2002. And by 2013, there were 55. Um, and, the, and by the way, you know, 2002 to 2013, there was something called a recession in the middle of that. Um, but they continued to grow even in the recession because their services were, were viewed as very, and they were, and they still are, very valuable to Veterans Health Administration, uh, Veterans Hospitals, as well as the uh, National Cemetery Association and the Veterans Benefits Association. So those are the, they provided services to those groups. Um, but my time came to an end there. Uh, you know, you go from four to 55 people, they start to hire people to do your work as a consultant. And then after my time came to an end, um, I had always wanted to develop a survey of civility from the ground up. Um, so after my time came to an end, I turned my research focus to developing such a survey. And Mark, we are we are really excited to hear about that survey and index and want to keep our listeners on the edge of their seats to get to that point <laughs> in our episode. But <laughs> but first, we'd love to hear some of the benefits that came out of the research associated with civility. And if you can share those benefits to companies, that would be wonderful to hear. Sure. Um, I mentioned job performance. I'd never seen any other concept more strongly correlated with job satisfaction than civility. Um, so definitely jobs, job satisfaction is one. Uh, per, something called procedural justice, which is fairness. It's, it's a perception of fairness in how decisions are made and the procedures that, that are used to make those decisions. Um, highly correlated with procedural justice. We found it was highly correlated with a number of performance indicators. Um, things like, this is, to me was amazing, patient perceptions of healthcare. So we measured patient satisfaction, and we found that in hospitals that had higher civility scores, the patients rated their own satisfaction to be higher. So you can kind of correlate this with customers. I mean, in a hospital, your customers are your patients. So what this is telling us is that if employees have a sense of high civility, in other words, if they have a sense of treating each other with respect, respect they're working in a climate, that values respect, that that's going to spill over into how they interact with customers. We also found that civility was negatively negatively related to absenteeism, to turnover, to EEO complaints, which, uh, again, the law is the law, but people don't perceive to be treat, mistreated if there's a, a climate of civility. Uh, something called perceived, what we call perceived exclusionary behaviors, which are things like unanswered emails, unreturned phone calls, um, missing important meetings, um, and then also even verbal abuse and physical physical abuse. Um, in a hospital setting, a lot of times there's certainly physical abuse on the, on the part of patients. Again, you wouldn't think necessarily that how a person is treated can spill over to preventing physical abuse on behalf of the patients, but it did. Um, so those are the those are many of the correlates that we found what's one of the statistics that's used frequently in, in looking at civility is that it is estimated but it's believed to be an underestimate but 
they believe that at least one out of eight employees leave an organization because of feelings of, of being treated with disrespect. So again, yes, civility is related to turnover, but uh, one out of eight people who leave feel that they were mistreated, feel that they were not treated with respect. Has nothing to do with pay, has nothing to do with a lot of the other classic variables we think are associated with turnover. It's just a, if they feel that they were disrespected, they're going to look for other jobs. So I'm, I'm thinking about some of the negative things that come out of this. And, you know, it's amazing to me, kind of the climate we have today and, and what we've learned over our lifetime, that, that companies are still experiencing this. Um, what what can companies be doing? What why should companies be interested in this civility research? Well, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, but most organizational leaders are interested in money. And is is an initiative going to result in an a return on investment? Um, so, what we did um, on the research team that I was on is we had access to data that we could show that increasing civility would result in very positive monetary outcomes. For example, this is one of the most remarkable findings I think I've ever found, but uh, we looked at a hospital's a hospital civility score. So in the VA, each hospital, at least at that time, had about a thousand employees. So we would take those thousand responses of employees and come up with an an overall score of civility. Once we did that, then we, we broke the uh, hospitals into three groups, above average civility, average civility, and below average civility. And what we found is that when hospitals had an above average amount of civility, that they spent 51% less on EEO complaints than hospitals that had a below average civility score. So said another way, hospitals with below average civility spent more than twice as much money on EEO complaints than hospitals with high civility. And this was just the investigation of the EEO complaints. It had nothing to do with any settlements because we didn't have access to that data. But just the, the, the costs to investigate a complaint was more than twice as much for the below civility hospitals than the high civility hospitals. We also found that sick leave costs, we, we had data and access to sick leave costs. And we found that sick leave expenses were between $120 and $240 more for each employee in hospitals with below average civility scores. Now that range 120 to 240 um, exists because we also looked at the organizational level of the employees taking the sick leave. And as you can probably surmise, the higher the organizational level of the employee, the higher the cost of sick leave. So even at its basic, basic point, you're talking a thousand employees per hospital. Uh, it's at least $120 per employee in sick leave costs per year. So that is again a lot of money, um, and and that I, from a monetary perspective demonstrates 
how the power, what I'll call the power of civility, you know, the power of respect in the workplace, because it, it not, yeah, it's great that it increases job satisfaction. Yeah. Okay. You tell me that it decreases turnover and uh, yeah, you say that people have higher perceptions of fairness and you say it's related to performance, but these are dollars and it, it shows that going with the civility initiative is not just some sort of hey, let's all get along kind of initiative, and that makes us all feel good. It literally has a direct link with organizational productivity and organizational monetary outcomes. So, Rosemary, to your question, why wouldn't you do this? Um, It doesn't cost a lot. It's not as though we're buying some high-priced new technology. Uh, It's not as though we're, we're having to invest millions of dollars in some new buildings or or something else we're talking about having people sit down have a discussion about what it means to treat each other with respect and when we don't to hold those people accountable you know those are just two examples i guess from a monetary perspective why organizations should engage in this initiative we really appreciate that i think it's really helpful for companies to understand that measuring civility in the workplace um and understanding how the scores of that can impact things like the monetary gains or, or losses that, that will come. And I think with that, we, we do want to get into the measurement of civility and, and how companies can use that. But first, if you don't mind, I'd like to quote something from your Beyond Diversity, Civility in the Workplace blog. It's a really good transition point to talk about who in the workplace um, might be engaging in this type of activity, as well as where there might be some overlap or disconnect um, between maybe diversity and inclusion and the civility um, work. And so with that, I, I just want to quote these couple sentences because I find them really relevant to tie the EEO complaint investigations and those risks um, to this next topic. Okay. And so from your, from your blog, it states, finally, and perhaps most importantly, civility training is not confined to a certain race, a specific gender, or a distinct protected class or group. It is essentially directed towards all of us so that all of us can feel respected in the workplace, regardless of race, gender, religion, national origin, color, age, disability, veteran status, or sexual orientation. In that way, civility training is far beyond diversity training in the workplace. With that quote in mind, do you think that there's a space for this? Um, like who in the organizations are actually embracing this and, and taking charge with civility um, to kind of bridge the diversity and to bridge compliance um, in the organization? Well, unfortunately, what I'll say, unfortunately, right now, the people that are embracing this are people or, if you will, departments that already have a problem. And and ideally, we would initiate this before there's a problem. But our experience has been that if you will, we're called in when there's already some disrespectful issues, if you will, or some mistreatment or at least perceived mistreatment um, among an employee or some employees towards another individual or group of individuals. But so, and I say that unfortunately because not that we can't help in those situations, but again, ideally we would like to have this conversation and these discussions and, and this initiative instituted, if you will, before we get to that point. Um, the great thing about uh, what I think the great thing about civility training and one of the reasons how it different how it's different from diversity training 
In the diversity literature, uh, there are a number of studies and, and, and the results are mixed and people argue one side or the other in terms of who should be included in a diversity training. Should we just include those individuals that are at either high risk or those departments that have had a history of issues or should we include everybody? Um, and there's, and, and by, by extension of that, there's also oftentimes a discussion of whether or not the diversity training should include everyone within a particular demographic group and therefore not anyone else outside of that demographic group. So, for example, should we do diversity training for just men or should we do diversity training for just Caucasians or, Afri or just African-Americans or, you know, so the idea is that with in the literature, they're arguing as to whether or not diversity training should be stratified. And, and, and therefore only invite people that fit some sort of certain demographic category. Civility training is around all of us and we, we leave the demographics at the door. I mean, we don't, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're male or female or who, what gender you identify with or anything like that. It, it's, it's, we look at the work group or the work unit the people who work together on a daily basis and we say, okay, what kind of jokes are appropriate? Or, you know, Fred, I thought that that joke that you told last week was inappropriate and it made me feel uncomfortable. By having a discussion, you set up a climate where people can, if you will, and I, this is a strong word, but almost confront one another, but without the, all the negative baggage that comes along with that. If we have an understanding that you know, Kelly and Rosemary, you know, we're working together and we all understand that if something makes us feel uncomfortable, I can come to you and tell you and we'll have a conversation about it. It doesn't mean that I'm going to file a complaint. It doesn't, you know, it, I'm not going to go tell our supervisor on you or anything like that. But if we can all be involved in this, then we can all have those discussions and we can all have a better understanding of how we should treat one another. So I, I'm not trying to denigrate diversity training, but in the, I, I am struck in the literature how, with these arguments as to whom should be attending the diversity training and even whom should be leading the diversity training. Some people feel that the diversity training should come from uh, folks from a certain gender or that the gender should match the people in the training and, and, and that kind of stuff. None of that enters into the civility training. The focus is on how do we treat each other? So we're not looking at what, what we've referred to as external markers for inclusion or exclusion. To me, this is clearly an inclusive training. Uh, everyone should be, in, should be attending the training. And importantly, nobody should be excluded from the training in a work group based on some sort of external marker. So that's, that's part of that. When I was writing that, that's what I was thinking in my mind is that civility training involves everybody, and it should. Uh, everybody should have a hand in how we in determining how we uh, treat each other and importantly everyone should have an understanding of other people's job roles and responsibilities to help accomplish a common goal i was just sitting here thinking about you know one of the things that we talk a lot about in bias training and and, and diversity training is when is it appropriate to train um, yeah. You know, if a company isn't ready, if the culture isn't ready, you know, if they have civility issues 
at the top of the house, for example, rolling out civility training to everyone in the company probably isn't kind of the right sequence or order to do this. Do you have any thoughts on on kind of how, how do you approach when to train and, and how to train? And then I'd love to hear more about the, the index that you created at some point as well. Um, what the research indicates is that people or employees in higher organizational levels are more likely to engage in uncivil behavior or disrespectful behavior. Now, that's that's a perception, but it's been found time and time again that folks in higher organizational levels have higher reports of uncivil or disrespectful behavior. So, Rosemary, your point that an organization may not be ready, it's the leadership that has to be ready for it. Um, and if they're not ready for it, like most initiatives, it's not going to matter uh, how good the training is or or how engaged the employees if if, if the top leaders are not behind something, it's not going to work. And that's especially crucial in this situation with this kind of training. So you're absolutely right. The, the top leaders have to be ready for this and they have to be willing to and sometimes make difficult decisions to support the civility initiative. Um, and sometimes those difficult initiatives may include letting somebody go that refuses to change their disrespectful behavior, even if they're a star employee. Well, again, what we find is that people in higher organizational levels and the star employees kind of feel that they can get away with it. And, and in fact, they do uh, most of the time. They get away with it because they're e they either have a lot of organizational power or if they're a star employee, they're, they're deemed to be too valuable to let go. So in or the leaders of an organization have to embrace this. Uh, there's a, a story in a book written by Robert Sutton um, that talks about, and that book is um, has an interesting title. Um, but uh, So I won't say it here on the podcast because it includes a profanity, but basically it's how to work with difficult people. And he, he talks about a, a situation at Men's Warehouse where uh, there was an employee at Men's Warehouse in this particular location who was one of the top performing employees in the entire company. But that particular store's performance was just average. And it was average because this employee would literally steal customers away from his coworkers. Um, was not collaborative at all. Would was very, very selfish. So the other coworkers wouldn't work as hard because they knew in a way it didn't matter that he was going to somehow steal the customers or take credit for the sale. But he was one of the highest performing employees in the entire organization. Once they leadership realized this, they try to get him to change his behaviors. He wouldn't. They gave him a three-month uh, sort of, uh, not orientation, but they gave him a three-month trial to change his behaviors. He didn't. They made a difficult decision to let him go. Um, that store, after they let him go, increased their sales by 30%. So they got rid of their star player, and yet they increased their sales by 30% because he was doing so much damage to the other members of the team. So a, an organization does, at the, at the top leadership level, have to be willing to make some difficult decisions if, in the course of, of this training, it's determined that some people aren't going to change their behavior and they're going to continue to to treat others with a great deal of disrespect. So with that in mind, how do organizations identify the individuals, work groups, or leadership that are high or low in civility? 
can you explain what tools are available for companies to utilize uh, for that measure measurement? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously one way to do it is is via a survey um, to give a survey to employees and from the based on the results of the survey to identify what we'll call pockets of low civility. Uh, we did that at the VA. We took our eight item measure of civility uh, that again came from the employee engagement survey and we could identify work groups that scored relatively low compared to their cohorts. So we would say, hmm, there's something going on in this work group. Um, you know, and that starts the discussion. So that's how you can identify if you, again, pockets. Uh, to use the men's warehouse example, uh, they, they could have been given a survey and, and identified that although the store was performing decently well, that their civility scores were low compared to the other stores. Why is that the case? So one way, and certainly probably the easiest way to, to identify this is by using a survey to help guide future actions. Um, that survey, the survey results can act as a basis for discussion. We did a survey, we, we worked with a company recently and we again did the survey uh, first and it was very interesting that everyone in this particular work group felt that they treated each other with respect, but yet their scores for civil communication were very low. So there was that disconnect. So we were able to say, how is this the case? How come everybody thinks that they're being, that they're treating others with respect, but yet when we look at the communication scores, they're very low. How is that, the, how is that possible? And, and, and honestly, I mean, there were some chuckles in the room because it was almost as though they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Um, but those surveys results can, can help start a discussion about what's going on in a particular work unit. And again, that, that discussion should take place among work groups that have relatively low scores. I mean, there's, if, if a work group is functioning fantastically well, there's no reason to go in and, 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 and try to take their scores from like a 4.4 to a 4.42. Um, but it's it's those work units that there's something going on that's kind of beneath the surface, but that nobody really openly acknowledges, but we'll do so on a survey as long as the survey is conducted well. And, and how I define well is you don't have people attach their names to the survey, but you do I have you have to identify the work groups. So you would um, ask what work group do they work in. If it's in a hospital, what floor do they work on? Do they work on the oncology floor or the pediatric floor or some other floor? Um, so you need to get it down to the work unit, but you also need to make sure and create an environment where people will be honest with you, at least as honest as, as is possible. Um, and that honesty is difficult to earn when you go in a first time to an organization and give a survey. I mean, they don't know you from anybody else. Um, why should they trust you? Um, one way to try to gain that trust is saying, we don't want your names. Please don't put your names anywhere on the survey. Um, just put just put your work unit so we can help so it can help guide future work. I don't believe that other consultants should ask about things like your gender, how long you've been there, your race, um, who you directly report to, you know, things like that because it's not that difficult to determine. Okay, somebody works in IT. They're 35 years old. They've been with the company for eight years. They're white and they're male. How many people you know, um, fit that profile in an IT department that has maybe 15 people? It's pretty easy 
through those channels to determine who gave these responses. And what you want to do as a consultant is try to get people to be as honest as possible by ensuring that you're not going to engage in some sort of witch hunt where you're trying to identify one person so that you can take negative action against them, but encourage them to be honest in their responses. So then you take those responses and you see what work groups are relatively low, and then that can be an opportunity to start having these discussions about appropriate and inappropriate behavior and things like that. Mark, I know I know through your practice, you've uh, created a survey that measures civility. Can you tell us a little bit more about your survey? Sure. Uh, based on the work, again, I mentioned earlier uh, of my work in the VA, when we created a measure of civility, once I left there, once my time there came to an end, I embarked on a two and a half year research study uh, to try to build a civility measure from the ground up. So in other words, not taking existing items that, which I think we did a good job of, by the way, um, but but instead of taking existing items and saying that sounds like civility, um, but instead of doing that, start from the ground up. So I got a research team together at Xavier University. We generated over 150 different questions in the, in the initial phase. Um, we looked at questions that were redundant or seemed redundant um, or seemed to be outside the scope of civility. Then we tested that on about, I think it was 600 and yeah, over nearly 700 employees. I got the results, um, did some more trimming. Um, and then we took a core of 30 items that we thought were very, very good and identified measures that we thought were similar to and dissimilar to civility. Like, for example, job satisfaction. We thought, well, if somebody works in a civil environment, their job satisfaction is probably high. So we looked at other measures that we thought would be related and unrelated to civility. That went out to about 500 employees, got the results back. And what we came up with was a survey, again, of civility. And what was surprising at first was that I had set out to, measure, to come up with a measure of civility, that, like we did at the VA, if you, and if you will, like a general measure of civility. I had no preconceived notions that it might have different dimensions. Um, but when I did the analysis, I found out that there were five dimensions of civility or five buckets of civility. And at first, I was horrified. At first, I thought that I had wasted all that time on this research. But when we looked at the items, the questions really broke down into five very clean dimensions. There was an individual dimension of civility that the, many of the questions had the word I in them. So I do this. I treat others with respect. I am respectful of others' behaviors, even if I don't agree with it. Stuff like that. There, uh, there was a questions around coworker civility. So how did that, how did the respondent feel about their coworkers? There was questions about the the supervisor, pointing to the supervisor. My supervisor treats people in my work group with respect or something along those lines. So we had individual, coworker, supervisor. There were also questions about the environment, the work environment itself. Is there this organization a sense of respect and inclusion or not? Things like that. And then the final one was civil communication, um, asking about things like body language or the uh, use of or inappropriate use of sarcasm in the workplace. So not so much civility directed towards that individual, but the kind of communication that it exists among many in an organization. So we came up 
we identified five dimensions and, that, and we validated those five dimensions in the second survey when we included it with related and unrelated measures. So the survey's 30 items. You know, it takes about no, no more than five minutes. Really, most people take it in two minutes. Um, and from that, we can identify five different dimensions of civility. So giving this to an organization, we might be able to realize that it, that the entire organization, for example, doesn't set a precedent or doesn't set a, an example of respectful behavior to a, a particular supervisor in, an, in a certain work unit or certain department seems to have unusually low scores of civility. Um, and then from that, whatever those results are can help guide uh, some future actions. Maybe that supervisor needs training, or maybe the organizational leaders need to really think about how they're role modeling or not role modeling appropriate behavior and changing their behaviors first. So that's our survey. Um, it's it's very you know it's brief, but it also has we have collected data now on well over a thousand employees, and we're very confident that it measures what it's supposed to measure. Thanks, Mark. And I think with that, there's. I think there's so much more we'd like to cover, but are unable to due to some time constraints. So at this time, is there any final thoughts that you want to share on civility in the workplace and the next steps or resources? Uh, yeah, uh, if I can tell my favorite story. What we're talking about with civility is changing the culture. So it's not just checking a box. Um, the EEOC had a public hearing that talked about harassment in the workplace and how can we prevent harassment? How can we have a discussion before the perceived incident or perceived offensive incident escalates to a complaint to the EEOC? If you have a culture that can encourage that discussion, you are going to prevent sexual harassment complaints and you are going to, you are going to encourage inclusion among all your employees. And this literally can be a transformative experience. My favorite story, um, it was not me, but a colleague of mine um, was facilitating a work group. And part of this training, everyone has to know each other's, understand each other's roles. So they go around the room, it's in this hospital, it's a surgical unit. Well, I'm the surgeon, you know, I'm, you know, I'm important. And then I'm the head nurse and, and whatever. And then they get around and the person says, I'm just a janitor. After six months of meeting once a month, talking about what it means, identifying, and, or I should say defining what it means to treat each other with respect, identifying and giving examples when people were not being treated with respect and so on. At the end of the training, I can't even say this without getting choked up, the janitor um, walked up to the facilitator and said, I want you to know I'm not just a janitor. I'm responsible for keeping a sterile work environment so that our veterans can get the best health care they can. That person changed in six months. That person is not going to leave the organization. That person was respected now by every member of their group because they realized that this person wasn't just a janitor. They had a very important role in the functioning of that team. <clears throat> that changed this person's life. And that's what we're talking about with this change in culture. It's not just some sort of compliance thing that we're, we're checking the box off to make sure that if we get sued, yeah, we had that training. We're talking about changing people. We're talking about helping employees realize their values in the organization. And that's why when I did those correlations the first time, that's why those correlations were so high because if people are treated with respect, 
They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be productive. They're not going to leave the organization. Things like that. So that's my favorite story. Um, you know, for, for I think you said some um, some next steps. I mean, to me, if anyone's interested in this, I would start with an organizational survey of civility. Uh, the VA has an eight-item measure that's available to the public. We have a 30-item measure um, that we what we do is we have people take it on our platform and then give them a report of the results. So we break the report down not only by the organ organization line but by the working unit. But at a minimum, to, and by the way, the EOC recommends that when this training occurs, that an external facilitator direct this conversation, because some of the, and it, it's important to realize that some of these conversations may not be may not be easy. Um, if somebody is perceiving another person as, as continually being disrespectful, that needs to come out. That might not be easy to hear, but we need to deal with those difficult situations in order to address them. Again, the EOC recommends an external facilitator if an organization can't afford that. Um, I, I do think that that's really important because if people may hold back if, if, say, a member of HR or their supervisors is facilitating this discussion, but at least have a discussion about what it means to treat each other with respect in, in a particular working unit. At least have that discussion and start changing the culture from one of, I'm not sure what's appropriate. I don't, I don't know if that comment was, that comment made me feel uneasy, but maybe it's just me to a comment where people can talk to each other and treat each other with respect, even when they're approaching somebody else who may have offended them inadvertently. So that's, that's, I guess, my final thought. And some really powerful final thoughts. I think with that in mind, we really want to uh, thank you for being on the podcast today. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast, and we really appreciate everything that you had to share. Uh, is there anything, um, can you share with the audience how they can contact you if they have any follow-up questions or would like to reach out to talk? Uh, sure. Uh, email, as always. Um, my direct email is mark, M-A-R-K, at Marcus MGMT, so it's M A. R-C-U-S-M-G-M-T.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. My name's Mark Nagy. I teach at Xavier University, and I'm a co-owner of Marcus Management Consultants, so one of those two should point you to me. Any of those mechanisms will work. Um, I mean, in worst-case scenario, you know, obviously just search me on the Internet. I don't think uh, I, I don't think there's an, another Mark Nagy that has anything that's negative about him, so hopefully not. But um, through those, either through Xavier, through Marcus Management, email, phone. Uh, we also have our own website, which is um, marcusmgmt.com. So it's Marcus Management, but the management is mgmt.com. You can go to that website and also contact us through that. Also, uh, feel free to reach out to myself, Kelly Wilson, and co-host Rosemary Cox uh, with additional questions or comments related to this podcast. We look forward to having you tune in to our next podcast episode on civility training and implementation in which Rosemary will take take the lead in a discussion with Debbie Nagy, um, also with Marcus Consulting Group. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about DCI Consulting Group, please go to our website at www.dciconsult.com. Thank you.